Well, what does it mean to be blessed, to be truly happy, to live the good life? What does the good life even look like? If we were to take a sample from American culture, we may hear some say that those who are successful in life are blessed. That those who landed a prestigious job or who got into that prestigious school, they are the ones that are truly blessed. Others may say that it's, it's getting married or it's having a baby. They're the ones that are blessed. A couple of years ago, there was a hashtag bless campaign that took over Twitter where people could post pictures of all the things that they believed made them blessed. They posted pictures about their family, about their friends, pets, maybe a beautiful round of golf that they got to play at a wonderful course. Maybe it was a certain percentage off that they got at Walmart, and they considered themselves blessed for it. No doubt, there are certainly, right, these are certainly not bad things. None of those things in and of themselves are inherently bad things. In fact, they can be seen as the kindness of God to us. But the question that we have to consider is, what if you've never experienced any of those things that our society says makes you happy or blessed? You never experienced any of those things throughout your life. Does that mean that you're not blessed? Or that you're unable to live the good life that everybody says is the good life? What does it even mean to be blessed? What does the good life even look like anyway? Does it mean that we get what we want or that we have a feeling of being lucky whenever we do get what we want? Well, in our passage today, the psalmist sets the record straight on what it means to live a life that is blessed, the truly happy life. So if you would turn with me to Psalm 1, Psalm 1 in your Bibles. If you're new to the Bible, that's going to be about halfway through your Bibles. If you open up halfway, you're probably going to be finding uh, the Psalter, the Psalms right there. It's going to be the first chapter of the Psalms right after the book of Job. And today we begin a new series this summer in the Psalms, looking at what a life devoted to God looks like in all the circumstances that we're going to face in this life. So over the next month, we're going to be studying the first five Psalms. And the word Psalm itself actually means praise. Right? The Psalms serve as Israel's songbook of praise and prayer to God through the highs and lows of life. And the book of Psalms, also known as the Psalter, is made up of 150 Psalms, that are actually broken down into five books, all detailing the heartbeat of God's people. And these psalms are effective. They're effective at taking the various emotions that we experience in life and actually shaping those emotions to the truth of God's word. They give us a language. They give us a language by which to express our deepest pains and our greatest joys as we journey through life. So if you're new to the Psalms, there is no better place than to begin in Psalm 1. So it's your lucky day. We're beginning with the first Psalm. And the first Psalm really serves as a gateway into the Psalter. Charles Spurgeon, the former English preacher, once said that Psalm 1 is the text upon which the whole of the Psalms make up a divine sermon. In other words, the rest of the Psalms are singing some variation of the tune of Psalm 1. That's what they're doing. The reason 
that the Psalter begins with Psalm 1 and not say Psalm 30 is because the psalmist is showing us that there are only two ways to live for two kinds of people headed toward two different destinations. Psalm 1 is a contrast of the righteous and the wicked to show us that the blessed life does not come through the word of the wicked, but the word of the Lord. That the goal of worship is God's glory through a life that is devoted to God's word. That's what it's all about. So let's read Psalm 1 together. Psalm 1. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the, law, in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. I think the main idea of this psalm, if you're going to distill it down, I think the main idea is this. The Lord identifies with those who identify with his son. We're going to see that within the text. We're going to get there by the end of it. The Lord identifies with those who identify with his son. And the psalmist makes his point by looking at the foundation, the fruit, and the future of the righteous and the wicked. He's going to make that point by looking at the foundation, the fruit, and the future of the righteous and the wicked. And that really serves as our three points. Point number one is the foundation in verses one and two. Point number two is the fruit in verses three to four. And point number three is the future in verses five to six. So point number one, their foundation, verses one to two. The Psalter begins on a note of celebration. It begins with celebration. The psalmist says, how happy is the one. That word for happy right there, or blessed, is a word that describes the state of happiness or well-being that ought to characterize God's people. And that's exactly who the happy one or the blessed man represents. He represents any man or woman who is a child of God. That's the blessed man. That's the happy one. That's who they represent. And the child of God is going to live a certain way because they take their direction from a certain place. The psalmist highlights this by focusing on what the blessed man denies and by what he delights in. What he denies and delights in. He begins with the negative first. The first thing that he does is he denies wicked ways. He denies wicked ways. Notice the downward Progression of evil in verse 1, if you would look at verse 1. The downward progression of evil. It goes from walking to standing to sitting. To walk in the advice of the wicked is to let their evil advice actually impact how you live. To stand in the pathway of sinners 
is to now associate with them in their sin. And then to sit in the company of mockers is actually to publicly identify with their ways. Publicly identifying with their ways when you're sitting in the company of mockers. Right? You move from just taking casual advice to then associating with their behavior to finally wholehearted allegiance to their company. That's the progression right here in verse 1. And not only that, but the slight nuance between the wicked, the sinners, and the mockers is one where you move from a one-time criminal to a career criminal to actively mocking those who follow the Lord's instruction. Right off the bat, the psalmist shows us that in God's eyes, there is no moral neutrality. There is no mushy middle with God. You're either wicked or righteous. And at times, that's a tough truth for us to hear. And the point of this progression, I think, really serves as a warning about sin's deceitfulness. Sin begets sin. Now, we need to be careful so that if we're walking with sinners, we don't start standing with them. That if we're standing with them, we don't start sitting with them. And brothers and sisters, it's a reminder that we should not underestimate our own proclivity to sin. We should not underestimate it. Speaking about sinful habits, Pastor J.C. Ryle once wrote that sinful habits are like stones rolling downhill. The further they roll, the faster and more ungovernable is their course. So it is with habits. The older, the stronger. The longer that they have held possession, the harder harder they will be to cast out. Custom is the nurse of sin. Every fresh act of sin lessens fear and remorse, hardens our hearts, blunts the edge of our conscience, and increases our evil inclination. Friends, maybe your sin now feels like that unstoppable stone that is rolling downhill for you. But before that stone picks up any more steam, I want to encourage you to be like the blessed man of Psalm 32, who didn't cover his sin, but instead he confessed it to the Lord. And what was he? He was forgiven. He received forgiveness. This is the one way, this is one of the ways in which we deny the way of the wicked. We turn to the only powerful one who is powerful enough to be able to crush that stone of sin and to actually break its fall in your life. So friends, what sins do you need to confess to the Lord before they pick up any more steam in your life? What might be those sins that you think of privately in your head that do not need to pick up any more steam lest they bring destruction to your life? Now, you may be saying to yourself, okay, right, we don't sit with a company of mockers, but didn't Jesus sit with with sinners? Didn't he sit with sinners? Wasn't he hobnobbing with tax collectors and sinners? Wasn't he called a friend of such people in Luke 34? He did. He sat with sinners, but he did not sin with sinners. He sat with sinners, but he did not sin with sinners. Jesus sitting with sinners isn't about Jesus publicly identifying with the wicked, but instead publicly engaging the wicked so that they might come to publicly identify with the Heavenly Father. That is why he's doing that. He publicly engaged them because he publicly identified with his heavenly father. 
Jesus lived a separate life, but he did not live a secluded life. He lived a separate life, but he did not live a secluded life. This is why holiness is not about isolation, but more about separation. Holiness is the act of being set apart from sin and devoted to God. That's what holiness is all about. This is what characterizes the blessed man or woman. And as our culture is becoming increasingly hostile toward Christianity, it's becoming less and less socially advantageous to be a Christian. It's never been easy to be a Christian, but at times it's actually been popular to be a Christian within one's community. And now being a Christian in America is a social liability rather than a social asset on your resume. It is nowadays. Friends, we're under more pressure than ever to privatize our faith and actually isolate ourselves from the rest of the world, just to be Christians behind closed doors or Christians on Sundays rather than openly within public. But we need to remember that though our faith is personal, it is not private. Your faith is anything but private. Certainly it's personal, but it's not private. And the lesson for us is that the blessed man or woman is different. They're distinct. Not because of some personality quirk that makes them different. That's not why they're different. But instead, they're different because of the one that they actually identify with. That's why they're different. They don't celebrate everything the culture tells them to celebrate. And at times, they'll celebrate things that actually society condemns. That seems like an oddball within our society. Rather than prioritizing praise and power in possessions, what do they prioritize? Love and sacrifice and service, just to name a few. Instead, we're to be distinct precisely because the future is not in our hands, nor in the hands of the powerful, the popular, or even the perverse. It's actually in the hands of Christ, who promised that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. That's whose hands it's in. Christ calls us to be distinct in a world headed for destruction so that some may actually be delivered from that destruction that they're headed toward. When we're not distinct, when we don't live lives that are actually set apart for God, we actually compromise our witness before God. The blessed man or woman denies the way of the wicked because it's not the way of the Lord. That's why. It's not the way of the Lord. Instead, they take their direction from his word and they delight in it, which is the second thing that characterizes the righteous. So not only do they deny wicked ways, but they also delight in God's word. They delight in God's word in verse 2. The Lord's instruction in this verse right there in verse 2, if you look at verse 2, the Lord's instruction right there speaks about his law toward his people, his direction toward his people, his Torah toward his people. And verse 2 may shock some because some people see God's word as just a boring list of rules. So it may shock us when we read that he delights in such a book of rules, that he delights in God's word, his instruction. Instead, what we see right here is the opposite. What leads the blessed man to reject the pressure of the world is actually the pursuit of pleasure in God's word. That's what it is. 
Rather than loathe what God commands, he actually loves what God commands. Because what God commands gives life. It gives strength. It gives help for every situation. It's frank about the human condition. It's hopeful in its offer of salvation. That's why he delights in it. And most importantly, the righteous delight in the word because in the word we see the only one who can truly satisfy our soul. We delight in the word because we go to the word to find the one who is supremely delightful. That's why we go to the word. How do you know someone delights in the word? How do you know they delight in the word? They've always got it on their mind. They meditate on it day and night. And what the psalmist is doing is he's showing us that delighting is actually a matter of the heart right here. And what captivates our hearts is going to shape our very lives. When the psalmist uses the word meditate, he's not speaking about emptying your mind of content. He's actually speaking about filling your mind with biblical truth, filling your heart with the scriptures. And the idea expressed in that word meditate entails mumbling it to yourself to gain understanding, to turn it over and over in your mind so that it sticks. Oftentimes, I think of it like a two-step verification process where you got to get a code in order to change your password. And what do you do when you get that code in order to finally get to go change your password? You mumble it under your breath. 4852, 4852, 4852. So that I don't forget it, so that I don't have to keep going back, but instead can actually get a new password and move on with my day. Right? It's like that. That's the kind of day and night consistency that we need for meditating upon God's word. We're mumbling it to ourselves regularly throughout the day, rolling it over in our minds. And so if you want to delight in God, then you've got to meditate upon God's word to you, how he has revealed himself to us in his word. It's been said that raking, as like in the yard, raking is easy, but all you get is leaves. Digging is hard, but you might find diamonds. One of the reasons why I love that quote is because it shows us that meditation is that digging work that digs up all of the diamonds and marvels over them all day and all night. That's what meditation is all about. But one of the best ways, I think, for us to be able to practice that meditation, I think, is through scripture memorization, where we repeat the same verse or set of verses multiple times a day, multiple times a week, over and over and over again, taking it with us in order to lodge those very truths into our hearts for every situation that we're going to face in this life, right? When I say scripture memorization, be like, oh, wanna, or oh, man, all those hard days of scripture memorization for some of you. But friends, recognize what you're doing when you are memorizing scripture. You are meditating. You are marveling at diamonds. You are digging them up, meditating upon the word, rather than just trying to check off a box for your memorization sheet. So much more to be had. And so when you're racked with guilt, you actually don't have to remain there in your guilt There are numerous verses throughout the scriptures that speak to God's mercy and grace to you in Christ in that very moment. That when you memorize God's word, you've got it stored up and you can pull it out when you need it. When you're consistently angry, there are numerous passages 
that provide help for those moments? When you're arrogant and prideful, you need God's words in those moments to humble you in your arrogance and pride. You need that. And you need to be able to pull it whenever you need it, even if it's in the watches of the night. God still speaks. Committing God's word to memory protects us from, well, from walking in the advice of the wicked. It actually feeds our affections for the Lord. That's what it does. And so to think more about this just practically, what does that even look like? Well, if you're looking for ways to start, you can begin by just simply listening to an audio Bible through your AirPods or whatever it may be as you mow, as you do the dishes, as you drop the kids off at school, as you take a walk. You can use an app such as the Bible Memory app or Verses, which is the one I'll often use. Those are great apps. They even have little games in there that try to, you know, make it fun for you to memorize the scriptures. There's also a method called habit stacking. When you add scripture memory review to a habit, such as brushing your teeth or dropping your kids off at school, right? All these are just different ways. Even if you're doing it this with kids, you think about Hunter's book, read it, see it, say it, sing it, right? You think about that book, that's a helpful method for getting the scriptures on the minds of your kids, right? All these things are for us to be able to store up the words so that in those moments that we need it, we can pull it and be able to live by it. There are lots of ways to meditate. But do not forget that the point of meditation isn't about checking a box. It's about communing with the living God who is your greatest delight. That's what meditation is all about. Marveling at diamonds. Well, the foundation of the righteous person's life, as we've seen, is, is God's word. And for those who deny wicked ways and delight in God's word, they're actually going to bear much fruit, which is the second thing that we see, their fruit, in verses 3 to 4. The psalmist gives us a picture right here to illustrate what we've just considered in verses 1 to 2. And he's illustrating a life that is the result, or is really, he's illustrating the result of a life that is either founded upon God's word or founded upon the advice of the wicked. Let's take the first one, founded upon the word of God. And so he picks up the blessed man of verse 1, and he keeps speaking, and he gives a picture about this blessed man. And he says that he is like a tree beside flowing streams of water that bears its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Now, I don't know about you all, but green trees, when I think about green trees, they often are not very remarkable to me if I'm being honest. I have lots of trees in my yard. They are all green, and I've seen green trees my entire life. I'm sure that many of you have green trees in your yard, and you've seen green trees all your life. So this honestly doesn't seem that remarkable, right? My trees seem to be doing okay. Not shocked that this tree would be doing okay. But when you think of this illustration, you've got to think about its context. You have to think about its context and how remarkable that this is. It's speaking about a dry climate of Palestine, right? Dry climate of Palestine where water is a luxury at times. And yet in this dry climate, you have a surprising sight compared to everything else that's in that climate. Here is a tree that is planted by water and it is fruitful. It has stability with vitality, as it's been said even in harsh and unstable climates. And this stability with vitality is meant to illustrate 
the person's life that is planted in God's word, right? Which illustrates that water right there. The psalmist is showing us that the key to a flourishing life in a withering context is to be planted in God's word. That's what he's showing us. That's the picture. This is what it means for the righteous to be blessed or happy. They're rooted in God's word so they can weather every climate that they are going to face. And brothers and sisters, the good news for us is that God's word has become flesh. It's actually dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus is the prototype, the truly blessed man of this psalm that embodies stability with vitality. He is that man. He's the blessed man. He embodies stability with vitality as the one who has defeated sin and death through his own death and resurrection. And through his death and resurrection, he has poured out his spirit into our hearts, and he has written the Lord's instruction upon our very hearts by his spirit. And so, brothers and sisters, you are blessed because God has actually grafted you into the vine of Christ so that you would bear eternal fruit for God. And we will bear eternal fruit in so much as we abide in Christ. Jesus himself speaks of this thing, of this very thing, in John 15, verses 5 and 6. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Without Christ, we cannot bear spiritual fruit. We cannot do it. We bear fruit by abiding in Jesus and his words. Only by abiding in him is this blessed man, right? Do we become blessed men and women? So brothers and sisters, do you want stability with vitality? Who doesn't want that through all the things that you're going to face in life? Well, then plant yourselves in God's word. Plant yourselves in his son and in his instruction consistently. Because when life is harsh and the heat turns up, you don't have to wither. There are other options for you. There can be stability with vitality for your life. God has given you his word in Christ to sustain you. And oftentimes, our greatest fruit will be born in difficult seasons. Because the Lord reminds us that we can do nothing without him, even in those hardest seasons of life. So where might you be withering where you actually could be thriving in your life right now? Where would you say you're withering when you could be thriving in God's word? By thriving, what I don't have in mind, what the psalmist does not have in mind right here in terms of prospering and thriving, it doesn't mean that all things are going to go well for you. It actually means that as you go throughout life, right, it means that you have a stability with vitality even when things are not going well for you and they do not go your way. That's what that means. So, for example, just because you may work in a hostile work environment, that doesn't mean that you can't bear fruit. That automatically the first thing that you think about is, I've just got to uproot and change jobs. It may not mean that. The blessed man or woman root themselves in Christ by speaking the truth in love, instead of responding in anger to their coworkers in that hostile work environment. They won't constantly complain, but instead they're going to combat complaining with trusting the Lord's promises to sustain them 
and establish them even in hard circumstances, right? You get the picture. I'm not saying that there are times when you need to like uproot and leave, certainly. But you've got to remember that the Lord is the one who provides even in those circumstances so that you do not have to wither, but rather you can actually thrive in the heat of those circumstances. It's been said that the one who says no to the world and yes to Yahweh's word is the one who is both rooted and lively. His stability is not monotonous and his vitality is not chaotic. Would you not want a life like that? You know where to root it in, in Christ himself and his instruction. However, this is not the case for the wicked, right? We get the contrast in verse 4. It's not the, it's not the case for the wicked. It says that the wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Rather than being planted in the water of God's word, the chaff are rootless. They're unstable throughout their lives. So during harvest time in Palestine, harvesters would actually gather up their grain and place it on the threshing floor. And after crushing it, they would thresh that grain. They would get a winnowing fork. They would throw it up into the air in order to separate the grain from the chaff. And when they would throw it up in the air, that chaff would not fall to the ground. Instead, they would be blown away, later to be burned. The picture of chaff is meant to to show us how the wicked are fruitless because they're rootless. They're not rooted in Christ, and so they're not going to bear good fruit, as we just read in Matthew 7. They're not going to. And after crushing, and after After this right here, what we see right here is that what you bear in the end, right, if you are not rooted in Christ, is ultimately going to be burnt up. It will be useless, like the chaff. And the text really amplifies this by spending twice as much time describing the tree versus actually describing the chaff in this text. That's intentional. The point being made is that your fruit will depend upon what you're founded upon. The result of a life not founded upon God's word will actually bear a future that ends in ruin, which is exactly what we see in our final point. Point number three, the future, in verses five to six. The psalmist now points us to the future destiny of the righteous and the wicked. It says in verse five, Therefore the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Now it's come full circle for the wicked right here. Notice that those who won't stand up to God's judgment in the end are actually those in verse 1 who stand in the pathway with sinners. Do you see that in verse 1? And not only that, but those who don't dwell in the assembly of the righteous are actually those in verse 1 who sat in the company of mockers. All this is coming full circle for the wicked. Friends, we're to hear, we need to hear this warning from the text. Who you walk and stand and sit with will inevitably determine where you end up because the basis of our future rests upon our foundation. That's what it rests upon. And if you identify with those who do not identify with God and his instruction, then the Lord will not identify with you as his own, as his own child on that final judgment day. You will be numbered among his people. You will not be numbered among his people in his presence. But instead, you're going to hear those popular yet harrowing 
words of Jesus in Matthew 7, verses 22 to 23, which will be left ringing in your ears. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did, not pro- did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, I pray that none of you face that future in this room. Because there will be nowhere to run or hide on that day. Everything is going to be exposed. And those whose lives are not founded upon Christ will not have a leg to stand on to make a case before God because the case has already been made against them with their lives. All of this is ultimately going to lead to ruin, as it says there in verse 6. But that's not where I want to leave you. I want you to see another thing that we see at the beginning of verse 6. It's the first time the Lord is mentioned in our psalm. It's actually the first time the Lord is mentioned in all the Psalter, which is important. It says, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. The word for watches over right there can also be translated to know. And what it means is not that just God just kind of knows what you're doing. He knows what the righteous do, right? Because God also knows what the wicked do. He knows that. But that's not what it has in mind, right? Instead, it means to know intimately, to know relationally, to embrace and care for his own people, to watch over them, to protect them and preserve them until that final day. To know them is to identify with them as his own people. Now it's coming full circle. God identifies with those who are identifying with his son. And yet, friends, the drama of this text is that none, none of us, come into this world as the blessed man or woman. None of us do. We're all on the side of the wicked. We are all ex-enemies of God. And so it's not just that God will identify with us because we don't identify with his enemies, but the shocking thing about the gospel is that God will precisely identify with his ex-enemies who identify with his son and associate with him in his instruction. Friends, every one of us here, myself included, is either a present enemy of God or a former enemy of God. If you're a present enemy of God, your judgment day is actually still on the calendar for you. If you're publicly identifying with the wicked in what you believe and how you live, God will publicly identify with you in judgment. That's what's meant by the end of this psalm. But it doesn't have to be that way. right? When you turn from your sin, you trust in Christ and his death and resurrection to pay for your sin, his righteousness and his righteous life actually becomes your own. And your wickedness And sin, he takes on and he pays for it in full. Jesus' righteousness becomes yours because he pays for it through his death on the cross. Jesus is the only blessed man who could do this. He was the sinless one who didn't walk in the way of the wicked, but instead, what did he do? He delighted in the Lord and upon his law day and night, even while he is on that cross paying for sin you see him quoting the scriptures. In all that he did throughout his life, his death, his resurrection, he prospered. And it's only through faith in him that we can be intimately known, publicly identified with, 
as the righteous and live a life with stability and vitality. But if you're a former enemy of God, right? If you're a former enemy of God because you've come to faith in his son, your judgment day is not yet to come in the sense of like eternal death. But instead, your judgment day happened 2,000 years ago on the cross at Calvary. You are not, right? You are now the blessed man or woman because of your connection to Christ, because you've been united to him through faith in the one who was wholeheartedly delighting in the Father, in the Father, in the Son. You are now the blessed man or woman who is to wholeheartedly delight in and meditate upon his word day and night. And that is what stability with vitality actually looks like in your life. That's what it looks like. So what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be truly successful? What is the good life even actually look like? Well, it means identifying with the Lord by rooting your life in his word so that you may bear fruit for eternity. Those whom the Lord identifies with himself will publicly identify themselves with him throughout their lives. So friend, do you know the Lord? Do you identify with the Lord? Or better yet, does the Lord know you and has he identified with you? Let's pray together. Father, we give praise to you that by your mercy, we can be united to Christ through faith. Lord, that we can be blessed men or women who are devoted to your word, who saturate themselves in your word. And though the world may say that we, that our heads are in the sand, Lord, before you, that is what a truly successful, blessed, good life really is. That's the happy life. Lord, we give praise to you for that, that in every moment, no matter what circumstances that we face, Lord, we know that we can have a stability with vitality, in our lives, because you've given us your word, and Lord, you've given it for all circumstances of life. Lord, help us to live as creatures of your word, in your word, daily meditating upon it, night and day, so that, Lord, that we might prosper in your sight by bearing fruit that glorifies your name. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.